Hello, welcome to Seattle on Tap. I'm Courtney Jacobson. And I'm Ashley Toten. I am sitting closer to my computer right now because I'm getting really tired <laughs> of our recordings being so off where my voice is not being picked up. So <laughs> it just likes me. I'm just kidding. It does. It does. It's like, God, shut up, Courtney. <laughs> you know I'm pretty good um I've been like a little bit stressed out because we're no longer asking for vaccination information at work mm -hmm. and then next week there's no masks anymore I guess yeah um <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that yet like as of the day this episode comes out yeah I think yeah yeah it makes me really nervous, especially with St. Patty's coming up. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting test. Mm -hmm. I read, um, I think it was meant to be like a, but it's okay, guys, don't freak out. How there's another variant that's been starting to ramp up elsewhere. And of course, you know, going to be here any day. Um, but... Uh, I can't remember who, I think CDC or what have you was kind of released a whole thing saying, but don't worry guys, if you had the Omicron variant, which almost everyone did, you're basically immune to this one. And I'm like, God damn it. I didn't, I still haven't gotten COVID. So fuck. <laughs> what does that mean for me? <laughs> it is really weird. Like that I'm triple vaccinated and yeah. had COVID. I'm like, what, how, like, how much is that going to affect my immune system overall? Uh, yeah. Hard to say. Yeah. It definitely, um, like Layla had a cold, I don't know how many months ago, quite a while ago. Um, and it just kicked her ass like big time. And, you know, we've had so long of wearing masks, not really and truly being around other people, basically letting our immune systems just kind of get all weak. And then a wimpy ass cold comes around and just kicks her ass. Like she was mm -hmm. out. She was legit on the couch not trying to move not like i was giving her all kinds of juice and she'd barely drink it like you know all the normal kid things were not happening <laughs> and yeah we did all the tests everything came back nope you just got a cold <laughs> it sucks mm -hmm. definitely makes me thankful for all of my many years bartending and basically being immune to just about everything mm -hmm. between that and growing up swimming in the commencement bay i am surprised i don't glow because <laughs> <laughs> the commencement bay was polluted as shit <laughs> especially when i was growing up 
It's like literal Simpsons fish swimming around in there. I'm, yeah, we were just waiting to see it. <laughs> Very colorful jellyfish, though. They probably do glow. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, drinking a tasty beer over there makes it me is remember so I should good. open mine. Yes, you should. This beer is like insanely good. I almost said banana's good, but that's the wrong fruit. Um, <laughs> um, this beer is actually a gift from Mariah. Um, mm-hmm. When she went to Nashville, she brought it back, and I've been hoarding it in my fridge ever since. Mm-hmm. um this is from southern grist brewing uh in nashville as i said um it is a passion fruit and guava sour it's called passion fruit guava hill sour it's also a sour that has a little lactose going on so it's got like a really creamy oh, mouthfeel. Yeah. it's really good uh like it's pretty tart um, mm-hmm. But the finish is really smooth, probably from the lactose. It, uh-huh. um, and it is also only 5.4. Oh. But it's made with like a ton of guava and passion fu- fruit puree. Um, and it shows. It's delicious. Nice. Kind of summertime almost. Oh, yeah. So mine is. Whoa. Yeah, super dark. I am going with... I'm sticking super duper local today. <laughs> super duper. Um, <laughs> going with a beer from Good Society. Nice. Not far from me, even less far from you. Mm-hmm. In the admiral section of our west seattle neighborhood um yeah so this is their beer called the night nurse i love that beer (laughs) this is a black ipa it's 6.4 percent and i love how do you know how this beer got its name no, I've wondered that. So this is a favorite of the head brewer's daughter, Emily, who is a pediatric ICU nurse. So she probably, if she was working there at the time, met Layla. Probably. Um, and she's worked the overnight shift for several years. The night nurse. <laughs> the night nurse. Um, but yeah, it's referred to as a cascading dark ale or black IPA. Um, it pours a dark brown slash black with a tan head. I concur. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, says it may look like a porter, but the night nurse is all IPA. Exhibiting classic pungent woody herbal and citrus notes. Yeah, that's a really good beer. Take a little little tasty poo here. Oh damn. That's like whoo. It's so good. It's so it's like a it's got that big 
roasty flavor like a porter. That's that Cascadian dark. Ooh, that is tasty. God, it's so good. I'm definitely going to make it to a second recording beer tonight. Because <laughs> you're going to be chugging. <laughs> good thing my story's not too crazy long. Because I go second today. <laughs> Mine's crazy, but not too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we just jump into it? I Is mean, that what yeah. we're doing here? All Let's right. Go. What are we even here for if I we're not mean, doing that? Do your job. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> what do we pay you the big bucks for? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? I'm just kidding. Wait, you get paid. Can we get paid for this? Shit. <laughs> Dang it. I forgot that part. <laughs> um, so I am telling the story. Um, it is a local killer called the werewolf butcher. And oh. I'm gonna tell that story now. Um, all right. So April 12th, 1995, 29-year-old Angie decided to call and check in with her mom, 48-year-old Rita Huffman, around 10 p.m. They spoke briefly and then agreed that they were going to talk the next morning. And so the next morning she calls back, but nobody answers. She tries a few more times, but still no one picks up. And she's like, that's really weird. My mom said that she was going to be there. Okay. And then she was like, well, it's extra weird because her 15-year-old sister named Mandy lived there also. And as anybody like our age um, that grew up in the, between the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. knows, teenagers were fucking like married to the phone because we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. So it's kind of odd that even Mandy isn't answering the phone. Come on, Mandy. Get it together, Mandy. Um, <clears throat> but something just didn't feel right because it's you know possible yeah sure maybe they ran out for an errand or whatever but it just seems weird because they planned so angie decides she's going to just drive over there they all lived pretty close to each other in eastern wenatchee washington so it wasn't like too crazy far out of the way so she gets there and she knocks on the door and there is no answer and the front door is locked so she cruises around to the back side of the house and there's a sliding glass door on the back of the house that evidently her mom generally never really locked. And so as it would normally be, it was unlocked. So she slid the door open and continues inside. She starts calling out, you know, mom, Mandy, etc. Something, you know, like you would mm -hmm. do if you were cruising into somebody's house, but it's silent. And so she kind of continues into the house and pretty quickly finds the bodies of both her mom and her sister, both of whom have been brutally murdered. Um, she runs out the door and goes begging neighbors to help her call, call 911. Because again, like no cell phone. And secondly, if you just found your family like that, you don't want to like be in the house doing it a bunch. Yeah. So she runs to the neighbor and they help her. And saying that the scene that the investigators arrive to is something out of a nightmare would be a fucking understatement. Rita was found lying on the couch in the family room. 
she had been stabbed 31 times, which is a lot. <laughs> that's a bit excessive. That's a lot. Um, Rita had also been really severely mutilated. Um, and trigger warning there, I'm about to say a lot of really horrible shit. So just be prepared. Maybe um, take a pause and go grab your own beer. Yeah, you might need it. And, or a whiskey, whatever. Do what you got to do, your guys. Emotional support beer. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> what I got right here. Um, all right. So Rita's breasts had been removed. Um, and her genital area had been cut out of her and put into her mouth. Her, it's so fucked up. Her body had also been posed in such a way that, like, as soon as you walked into the room, you would see the level of mutilation. So it was like posed, like as a presentation almost. Um, and so then they get into the master bedroom, and they find the body of fifteen-year-old Mandy on her mom's bed, and Mandy had been bludgeoned in the head. She'd also been violently raped, during which time her attacker shoved a baseball bat up inside of her, and it was mm. still there. Um, and I really wish that was all. Mandy had been disemboweled and also sexually mutilated in a similar fashion to her mother, but the monster that tortured and killed her then decided that the skin he removed from her genital area, he would just drape over her face for whatever fucking reason. And she was then posed in a really provocative pose. Um, and next to her on the bed is where they found her mother's breasts. <sighs> Again, saying that Rita and Mandy suffered would be a huge fucking understatement. Um, and like, legit, who the fuck could even do something like this or even think about doing something like this? But police had no fucking idea. So they kind of had to go through the house, comb for evidence like they would normally do. But like, who the fuck would do this? They can't, they're just like, we don't, there's no like angry ex-boyfriend. There's no, none of that shit. And so they started interviewing neighbors, hoping that somebody saw something or heard something. And they kind of looked around the house. There was no signs of forced entry, which obviously A, they knew their attacker or B, that person was watching and knew that they never locked that back door and just let themselves in. Um, additionally, one of the neighbors told police that he had noticed a black pickup truck pulling up and parking. Um, there was a school directly behind the residence and this black truck just parked and was there for kind of a while and the neighbor kind of watched, but didn't see anybody getting out. And then eventually the person was gone. Um, but with not a whole bunch to go on, detectives decided to look into incident reports from the night before because they were just like, how, like, how has nobody seen anything? Like something, ha there has to be fucking something. Yeah. And that was a really fucking smart decision because much to their surprise, something did stick out that might be a match. Um, around 2 a.m., just hours after the murders took place, Police arrested a man on suspicion of burglary. Um, he was described as being dressed all in black. And it was noted that when officers like pulled over his pickup truck, he immediately jumped out and put his hands in the air and was like, basically prepared to be arrested. Um, which is weird, but not technically, I guess, that incriminating. 
while police kind of poked around in the area, they did find a bloody knife in the area and collected it as potential evidence. But as you're aware, DNA testing takes kind of a minute, especially in the 90s. Um, but it was later confirmed that the DNA on the knife did match the victims. Um, and the knife was matched specifically to a set that belonged to Rita and Mandy's house. So it was like a knife from their own kitchen that was used on them. Back then, were they doing DNA, though? Weren't they just doing blood type? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it took a while for them to finally be able to link DNA and shit to them. Mm-hmm. Um, having no way to prove that the knife had been in the man's possession, let alone you know, that he was affiliated in any way to the crime, they had to release him. And he may not have been a burglar, but he definitely could very well be a psychotic killer. So the police kind of kept their eyes on him anyway, again, which was very smart. And I wish more police would do this shit. Um, So now they started surveilling Jack Owen Spillman III, who was a 27-year-old from Spokane originally, um, who also worked as a butcher, which makes me want to barf. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> while under surveillance, um, they also pulled up his record. And this shitbag's record is something else. Um, it includes attempted rape, rape, burglary. And he's listed as a potential suspect um, in the disappearance of a girl named Penny Davis, who was nine years old. Um, who was the daughter of a person he was living with at the time that she went missing. Yeah. So eventually Spillman slips up and while he's being tailed by investigators, he's seen tossing out what they go retrieve. It turns out to be a super bloody ski mask. Like it is like covered in blood. And again, later it was identified to belong. The blood was identified to belong to Mandy. Um, also noteworthy, um, there was an excessive amount of blood around the mouth hole of the mask. Oh fuck! Um, and it was later revealed that Spillman drank Mandy's blood after his attack on her. Ugh. Yeah. Now having the ability to directly connect him to the killings without question, he was finally for reals arrested. Um, Additionally, more evidence had been discovered by this time um, at the scene, including hair and blood and other things that linked him. Um, While in jail, Spillman um, decided he was going to tell his cellmate, basically bragging. It's like what all the killers do. They just fucking think they're the coolest shit ever. Yeah. And essentially was like, you know, my only goal in life had been to be like the most famous serial killer in the world. And he told him that he likened himself to a werewolf and he bragged that he enjoyed stalking his prey, torturing and mutilating them just as the mythical monster would. He also told the man that his first victim had died too fast while he tortured her with a knife and that he later used to exhume her body for sexual reasons cool yeah yeah so when it came time for the trial um a deal was made with him to avoid the death penalty and they essentially were like hey so you're linked to the nine-year-old girl penny that went missing and he was like 
BK. And they were like, you won't get the death penalty if you confess. And he did. Um, he confessed and gave the location of her remains. And when they located her shallow grave, she was posed almost exactly how Mandy was found. Mm. However, um, she was obviously very decomposed at the time. So it wasn't clear exactly how she had died. They couldn't quite tell. Probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I legit was like, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't have to read that. Because <laughs> mm. I don't, I may have never slept again. Um, so finally, in the spring of 1996, Spillman was sentenced to life uh, in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, and then an additional 45 year sentence for murder of nine year old Penny Davis. Jack Owen Spillman III, the werewolf butcher, as he's sometimes referred, is currently serving. He's currently 52 years old um, with a lifelong prison sentence that. As far as I know, he's in relatively good health from what I've seen, which means he'll be in jail for fucking ever, which is where he should be. And where is he in jail? I didn't say, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I kept trying to dig around to find what prison he was actually in. Um, I, I would assume it's somewhere on the like in eastern Washington, but who knows? It's hard to know because like prisoners get shipped around like especially if they have really long sentences like that it's it's really weird it's so weird yeah that guy is a fucking dirtbag i just that's the whole thing too is like when he was he was stalking mandy um and then when it came time to like attack her mom was like literally just in the way and became a victim kind of subsequently wow fucking terrible i also can't like and i don't know how the sister you know the other daughter that found them like how you even deal with that level of trauma you know finding your family like that yeah i I had a really hard time researching that one because it's the details. I tried to keep it, you know. Yeah, shortened to the point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I saw little bits. I remember hearing about that. Like, I don't remember how long ago, but, oh, man. I just remember being like, what the actual... First of all, you're mixing up your cryptids here, bud. <laughs> blood plus werewolves plus a butcher plus I mean, I'm sorry, no. You're you're fucking it all up for that one. You got to pick one. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> n- no. He also, like, look up his picture. He is, like, the creepiest looking dude. Yeah, I did. I, because I don't, I couldn't remember what he looked like, and I looked it up. I was like, oh, oh, God, oh, God. Yeah. So no. creepy. It's got, like, si- yeah. <laughs> <sighs> you know, there's something to be said for somebody's eyes, but, like, somehow he has sort of beady eyes, but also not. Mm-hmm. Like, they're 
like those bulging kind of eyes, but also <laughs> somehow beady. I, I, it doesn't make sense, but. He kind of looks like the hillbilly from The Simpsons. And his head is the same exact circumference as his neck. It's like all just. Like a peanut. You got a peanut? Got an orange peanut? <laughs> yeah so sorry about that yeah also you're welcome for the oh, nightmare so welcome <laughs> <laughs> i hope your story is a little nicer than mine it is <laughs> oh thank goodness uh, i mean mostly <laughs> uh, okay I'll just sit here and drink my beer then. I mean, there is some death, but it's like, that's not the focus of the story. <laughs> I'm very intrigued and slightly concerned. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. So. Yeah, that'll happen. Let's uh, take a quick break. Mm -hmm. And we'll be right back. Okay. Okay, we're back. <laughs> you just freaked me out a second ago because you gave me a look like there was somebody behind me, except I can see behind me because mm -hmm. the camera, and I'm up against a wall, I but I still got wall. spooked. <laughs> I still got scared. That's okay. <laughs> well, it's almost like, I mean, really, we couldn't have planned that better because um, I'm going to tell you about a haunted thing. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so, see how it's like, there's murder, but I'm not focusing on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picking up your putting down. Yeah. <laughs> um and when i was saying i'm keeping it super local i meant it <laughs> we're not going far we're just going down the hill to georgetown oh down the hill across the highway you know mm -hmm. um so georgetown for those that don't live in seattle is a neighborhood of seattle if you've ever heard of Rainier beer. That's where it was brewed. Um, it's a fairly historic area of Seattle. Um, the, the funny part of the connection of the history of Seattle is it was kind of like, uh, and by kind, I mean, super 100%. Um, Seattle's red light district. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that is why this place even exists. So I'm going to tell you about the Georgetown Castle, also referred to as the Gessner Mansion. Have you heard of it? I have not, actually. Okay. So probably like me, you didn't really know of it but you've seen it a bunch of times and been like I wonder what the deal is with that place because it's so like 
kind of, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't match the rest of the area. But I mean, it's Georgetown, so it does. <laughs> it is a, well, it was built in 1902. And it's a Victorian era style, like Queen Anne style, very, um, I mean, just if you picture in your mind what a Victorian style home mansion would be that that is what this is it looks like the house from Charmed almost okay I didn't really watch that so I did a bunch <laughs> but it def it looks like anything like if you're gonna go okay if we're gonna put a show about witches um we need to find a Victorian mansion for them to live in, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I mean, I'm surprised that there have not been movies filmed in this. Like, real surprised. Anyway. Um, like I said, built in 1902. By, and it was built by a pretty wealthy Seattleite named Peter J. Gessner who <laughs> he's not originally from Seattle as I mean of the time not a lot of people were originally from Seattle it was still fairly new um, he was born in Ohio to German immigrants he he was born in 1852 um, at some point he moved from Ohio to, um, <clears throat> Little Falls, Minnesota and was a cattle dealer for roughly a year. And then he married his wife who was 20 years younger than him. <laughs> But it was 1880, so not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> she was about 19 or 20. He was 40. So depending on when her birthday was. Um, she, her name was Elizabeth. She went by Lizzie. And uh, they, so there's a lot, there's, because of the time there's a lot of like different things in the history of it like some things say that he, the two of them married in 1880 and before they got here other stories say that he met her here and married her here either way i'm gonna go with the one that said that they married in 1880 because I did some deep diving. <laughs> I did a little bit of a um, kind of side quest, which thanks to my ADHD happens from time to time. <laughs> and I found myself spending a little too much time trying to find this guy's background of like, okay, but when did he get here? And when did he go there um, on ancestry? So <laughs> That'll happen. I found a marriage record. 
and it was 1880. So I'm going with that one. Um, but yes, so he ended up arriving in Seattle, having lived in Helena, Montana before here. So don't know how long between, you know, here, there and everywhere, but Ohio somewhere at some point moved to Minnesota, then moved to, um, Helena, Montana, and over here to Washington uh, in 1889. And he very quickly became known as a prolific gambler. And not like the, oh great, here comes the guy that's always gambling, he's gonna, you know, not like problematic, but like, oh, he's the one you want to go to. <laughs> and <laughs> he um, established himself as a great blackjack dealer and was running games first at the Standard Gambling House, which was a thing like right in the heart of downtown Seattle back then. <laughs> um, and then quickly ended up going to the Seattle bar, which was established right after the great Seattle fire that was in 1889. The Seattle bar later was changed to being called the Central Tavern and to this day is called the Central Saloon. It is Washington State's oldest running bar. Cool spot. And he ran poker games there. There's some other stories of some other not so legal things happening at the central tavern at the time. Um, one of which, you know, it's that time of a lot of sailors coming in out of town, a lot of logger. I mean, it was, this was the highlight of the wild motherfucking West. It was, <laughs> you know, directly before and during the height of the Yukon gold rush. So, prostitution lots of um lots of you know things we would associate with wild west things so mr peter j gessner running his poker games out of central tavern was not given a single shit about the age of the people wanting to pay to play <laughs> And the Seattle police busted his ass. Whoopsies. Yeah. Um, he uh, kind of, you know, he got his, got in trouble, wasn't uh, able to have his good of money flow coming in for a little bit because of that. And, you know, he, by this time, he and his wife, young wife, Lizzie, 
had three sons. And so he's like, you know, and I've, I've made a shit ton of money. He owned a chicken farm. And um, was making really great money with that. And uh, so he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check out this, uh, this Duwamish area. That, uh, I know I can run some games out of that area. But I can, I can also make my wife really happy and build her a really big ass house. So he's like, all right, I'm going to build this giant ass ma- mansion. She's going to love it. It's going to be in the style that all the uh, richy pants, you know, upper crust in, you know, high society of San Francisco everything they're going after so she's gonna love it has this house built and uh well it it didn't it didn't quite happen fast enough there were already problems in the marriage and lizzie was getting the attention she needed and the kindness that she needed from the man that was running their chicken farm. <laughs> Mr. Edward Ward. And uh, that kindness went as far as into uh, planting a seed. <laughs> oh, whoopsie poopsies. Whoopsie. So. Wrong right? kind of farming. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we can, there there are ways that we could continue on with that, but I'll stop. <laughs> um, so, of course, um, with the news of uh, her, mm, well, having, have, having a, a pregnancy that he was not a part of (laughs) Uh, (laughs) he was very distraught and she had a quote what was published as a surgery that she was then recovering from so she stayed back at the farm to uh, be nursed by one of the help like the there was a lady there that was like the cook kind of somebody that was employed by the family and she was going to nurse her back to health and uh this um unknown reason surgery so they essentially were no longer together they're still married but she didn't move into the house with him and all of this happened right at the time that the house was like ready to move in so Gessner moves in by himself he brings one of his servants because he's like I am wealthy I've got this big ass house like complete with a ballroom and shit (laughs) (laughs) like like you do yeah it's huge. 
So, <laughs> moves in, brings a servant. So he's got like at least some company, but also a person to like, you know, do things for him so that he can still kind of be like, look, I'm rich. I've got a servant and a giant house. Um, and he begins running all of his poker games out of the house, right in the ballroom. And um, there happened to be a fold-down stage so that they could have some entertainment. <laughs> um, of the booty shaken variety? Of or... the adult variety. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it wasn't a fiddle player. Got it. <laughs> I mean, there might have been one so that they could have music to shake to. <laughs> You know, the tassel's got to swing by some sort of music. It's a true story. <laughs> also, at the time, this house was technically riverfront. The Duwamish River was later moved by hand. Like, like people freaking moved the Duwamish River so it could be more convenient for bullshit. Industry, blah, blah. So he also built a kind of river boat dock kind of thing that he sponsored illegal boxing matches. <laughs> like this was like a, he fit right. He was like the main place to go in the red light district now. <laughs> but... It didn't, uh, none of it fulfilled him. He was still really upset, distraught at his, you know, what he thought of as a failure. I mean, he had built himself up to the point where he's like, finally, okay, I'm building this big house. I've got my three sons. I've got my wife, my young, pretty wife. We're all going to move in. Everything's going to be great. And nope. So within the year like just under a year later he just can't he still just can't deal he's just still upset and he also heard of the surgery hush hush abortion that his wife had and he's still like kind of in denial like maybe it was his Mm. except that like those dates don't make up make sense for that mm. but okay so july 29th 1903 he's fifth roughly 50 depending on the resources you go by anywhere from 50 to 52 uh he drinks carbolic acid and dies yeah yeah that sounds pretty awful right that's, i'm like what the fuck is carbolic terrible. acid um <laughs> It was basically a super early disinfectant. It was like one Gross. of the first ever disinfectants that was used in surgery. And like the reason surgeries started to be a little bit more um, successful was because they discovered this carbolic acid. And anyway. Um, 
Lizzie um, is now a widow. And technically owns this house <laughs> that she that was built for her that she had never lived in yet. So she marries her chicken farmer. I was just gonna say, does she and Edward live happily ever after? Cute. Yeah. 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 Marries her chicken farmer, Mr. Ward, and she, Mr. Ward, and her three sons move into this house. <laughs> um, eventually, so that's, you know, 1903, by 1912, they sell the house, because... Red Lake District is probably not the best place to raise a family, you know? Mm hmm Especially attached to that kind of history. Like, you know, the only reason she has it is because the man that built it killed himself because she left him. <laughs> um, so, sell the house to a Dr. Willis H. Corson. If the name Corson rings a bell, that's because we have so many buildings and streets named after the man. Mm -hmm. He was the former superintendent and head coroner of King County. So this whole area, um, King County Hospital, which is now Harborview. So our level one trauma center major hospital where... You know, if you get life flighted from anywhere, you're going there. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, because of the time, and as essentially everyone in ev any form of power in Seattle at the time was, he's crooked, crooked as fuck. <laughs> I bet you can't guess why he bought this house. <laughs> Why? He's like, I see your gambling ring house in the uh, red light district area, Georgetown area of Seattle, and I raise you a brothel. Nine bedrooms with a fold-down stage and a big ballroom perfect for gambling and shows and rooms upstairs i'll take it <laughs> if somebody dies i'm the coroner easy to hide oh and there's a river right there Ugh, that's dark mm -hmm. speaking of um there was a lot of um a lot of violence as i'm sure you can imagine with a brothel and gambling and drinking and you know all the other things so just keep that in mind and uh now we're gonna fast forward to during world war ii the house became a boarding house for um all of the people that had to come rush over and quickly get a job at Boeing right there to help build warplanes. And 
um, so all these brand new workers that are rushing to Seattle to get a job that they could get um, board there and it becomes called the Castle Inn, which is why now it is called the Georgetown Castle. Um, then fast forward again, 1973, a local artist named Ray McQuaid buys the house for the low, low price of $16,000. Holy shit. Because it was bare. It, it was it was just like a thread away from being condemned. It had been vacant for some time. And during that time, vagrant, I mean, early 70s, not a great time in U.S. history for, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people not having some homes at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, People had started fires for warmth just straight up on the hardwood floors. <laughs> God. Um, only one of the nine bedrooms was livable. And um, so he buys the house, moves in, is like, okay, I, I can slowly fix this up. He had bought a... Um, gallery in Pioneer Square. So, you know, he's very attached to the same kind of history. Pioneer Square is where that bar was, for those that don't know about the Central Tavern. Um, So, same commute. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's kind of lonely living in this sort of scary-ish house that had is super run down. I was going to say it could fall down at any fucking second. <laughs> so a good friend of, of Ray McQuaid's moves in with him. And I didn't believe this name at first because it sounds very made up, but it is Peter Peterson. Um, but apparently he either he is or at least his family is from Norway. So it's very, mm-hmm. um, it's like the two T's. It's P-E-T-T-E-R and then P-E-T-T-E-R-S-E-N. So it's very, it might even be Pater, Paterson, but there's no D, so whatever. Anyway, let's not go into that side quest. Um, <laughs> either way, this friend moves in with him. And they both kind of slowly fix up the house, stay roomies. Peter kind of works at the gallery off and on. He also ends up later getting a job as a server at a local restaurant downtown. And um, very quickly they start seeing ghosts. Uh some clothes start moving around. Um, there's a story of the first time they see something, like they're both living in the one bedroom that is the only one that's habitable. Um, and like they're both on their beds. <laughs> I'm, my whole thing is I'm just picturing like these 70s dudes with giant mustaches. 
<laughs> in like twin beds in each corner. <laughs> They're watching TV that's across the room. And next to the room is like a closet and hanging on the closet is like a jacket or something. And all of a sudden the jacket starts like moving. And then all of a sudden it's moving as if someone's in the jacket. And then like a like, new episode comes off of it being hung on the uh, door. And then all of a sudden like it turns around and they see like, kind of see this face of like an old lady and she's got like a handkerchief or something and she starts like grabbing her throat and it's like this violent scene and it looks like she's trying to get someone to stop choking her and then all of a sudden she like with this handkerchief red handkerchief like goes over and is like shaking it violently both of the beds and (laughs) anyway then like a picture of a man is floating up beside her and like goes across the room and smashes against a wall they're like what the fuck where'd that picture come from (laughs) who is this guy who is this ghost what what's happening and then down the road i'm not down the road but you know later on another day peter is going up up the stairs to go to the bathroom and he hits like at one point towards the top of the steps and all of the sudden it's like so much colder he said it was like i just immediately walked into a deep freezer and and then i could feel like resistance like something didn't want like almost like you were having a hard time like he couldn't get past this point he ends up going past the point and then goes back downstairs goes doesn't say anything because he's just kind of weirded out but also kind of questioning like am i losing it am i just really tired what's happening and then ray goes upstairs to you know go do his thing go to the bathroom brush his teeth blah 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 and um as he goes up the stairs right about the same point same thing but then when he goes back down the stairs he gets pushed And almost completely falls down the stairs, kind of catches himself like on the wall. And he goes back in the bedroom and is like, Peter, you wouldn't, you won't believe this. I, 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 there's, it's gotta be like that same ghost or something. There's, this place has gotta be haunted. And so they start talking to neighbors and neighbors start telling them stories about oh yeah that place is haunted and telling little bits and pieces of kind of oh yeah it's you know there's you know little pieces of history kind of oh there was it was a brothel oh this one lady was killed oh this happened oh this you know things that weren't true things that were so they didn't really know what to believe but they keep seeing this ghost And slowly but surely, they're seeing more and more and more of this lady. And at one point, they see this lady, and out of nowhere, Ray just, he's like, I don't know how I knew this, but I just knew. And I said, he goes, her name is Sarah. And then all of a sudden, she disappears. And... From then on, he was kind of the main one of the roommates that she would kind of 
be visible to and kind of communicate to. And through time, she ended up at one point, Peter comes home from his serving job. It's like two in the morning and Ray is awake and painting. He's an artist. He's often up late painting. But when Peter, he's like, oh, what are we, what are we painting today? You know, goes to look and he's like, oh my God, you're painting Sarah. And Ray's like, yeah, she asked me to paint her. And I guess ever since then, after he painted this portrait of this woman they called Sarah, she was more lighthearted. She would do like little harmless pranks on them from time to time. You would hear, they would hear her just kind of laughing like lightheartedly and she would like playfully be around and sometimes she would just kind of be there. And they framed the painting, hung it at the top of the stairs and apparently they would just occasionally come around the corner and see, look up and they'd see her just admire, standing there admiring her painting. Weird. So there are different stories of who this Sarah person could be. One story is that she was Peter, um, original Peter Gessner's niece, so Lizzie's sister, his wife's sister. And this one I really don't believe. This just seems too much of a convenient, like, story to tell just for, ooh, you know, like, for a dishy secret, you know. But apparently people believe that this was um, – no, yeah, so his sister-in-law, not niece, sorry. So his wife's sister, and at some point she was there and he, quote, abused her to where she, quote, fell pregnant. <laughs> and he was upset with that. So he locked her in one of the turrets and... When she gave birth to the baby, he killed the baby and buried it on, in, like, the back of the house. And then killed her eventually. Like, kept her locked away and then eventually she died or she, or he killed her. Which, timeline-wise, that there is no way that could really work out. Because why would she go there to visit just him when her sister left him and never lived in that house during the time he was alive? And it doesn't seem like he even lived there long enough for all of that to happen. Nine months is how long it takes for a baby to be born. Mm -hmm. So one that I believe more so is that um, there was a woman that lived there and was employed as a part of the brothel. 
and she had a John that killed her. And the weird thing is, though, there is a story about when they, when somebody tore down a back porch because it was like about to fall off anyway. Um, they found a baby skeleton under the porch, but there are no records of it. So it's still just kind of a story. Um, also, um, let's see, there's another story that like Peter's son grew up, married a woman named Sarah, and he was abusive to her and killed her and her baby. But the thing is, don't see how that could happen because his kids didn't live in that house long enough to grow up and ever live there as adults. So that doesn't make sense either. All right. Um, back to Ray and Peter throughout the time that they lived in the house. So they, they, so Ray owned the house from 1973 until 1990. And in this time, um, I mean, Ray McQuaid is an artist. He's a very, at the time, pretty well known artist. And so had lots of friends here, there, and everywhere, and occasionally they would have friends come and stay at the house. Um, one woman from Australia came there and stayed a little bit. She woke up in the middle of the night, and there was an old woman digging through her all of her suitcase, and she's like, um, hello? And the woman looked at her like, oh, no. She's like, girl, don't worry about it. It's okay, dear. You can look through. I don't care. I don't have anything to hide. <laughs> And then she fell back asleep and she wakes up and is like, I don't know if I was dreaming or what the deal is, but there was, a, is there an old woman here? <laughs> and they kind of were like, uh, I think you saw Sarah. <laughs> and they, they were like that portrait up there. <laughs> so that's a ghost. We don't know really who she is, but apparently she lived here at some point. Um, uh, Peter had some relatives come here from Norway when they stayed. In fact, his dad, I guess the Sarah ghost really liked his dad <laughs> and like showed her not like in a bad, not in like a naughty or risque way, but like she, you know, was apparent to him a few different ways. And at one point he, you know, having just come over from Norway and was here like total jet lag state gets wakes up at like three in the morning and is like okay I'm ready for some coffee and a sandwich so he's trying to figure out where the bread is he's looking around the kitchen he can't find the bread and he turns around and the bread just all of a sudden gets a loaf of bread just gets tossed at him not at like at his head but like tossed <laughs> like oh thank you <laughs> Uh, 
All right. So fast forward. 1990. A man named Tim O'Brien buys the house. He lives there for about seven years and never has any personal experiences that he he believes he never had any personal experiences. But he heard a lot of stories from the neighbors, neighbors saying, oh, have you have you seen any of the ghosts? Has Have the ghosts been paying attention to you or blah, blah, blah? Have they revealed themselves or anything like that? And he's like, what? No, mm-mm, haven't heard anything. And they're like, well, just yesterday I walked by and the old woman was up in the window, so I'm surprised you haven't had anything. And he's like, what? <laughs> Sorry, what? So... It intrigues him enough that he starts really digging into the history of the house. And he then finds, oh, okay, so the house was built in 1902. It was built by Peter Gessner. You know, he finds and starts putting together some of the past of the house. And um, he starts collecting kind of some of the stories. Um there is one story of just a olive darker olive skinned man with slick back black hair and a very ominous sort of negative kind of angry energy occasionally roams the halls um they apparently the second story is the most haunted Um, that's where occasionally things will just kind of be moved. You'll see, you can walk by and look up and see someone looking out one of the windows. Um, now coming to a little bit more modern time, 2004, a woman named Linda... I'm probably not going to say this right, but Linda Bazan, B-A-Z-A-N, and her son, Micah Schleed. They both sold their houses, put together the money, and bought this one. And have since totally restored it to the glory it should have been towards the beginning. Like, Um, there is still a little kind of, uh, alcove, it's a mini ticket booth, basically, as you enter the ballroom, they've restored even that part, (laughs) um, and, uh, they've invited a few different ghost hunters, uh, paranormal, uh, investigators and even were on the Montel Williams show. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, so there's a, I think it was the Seattle haunted tours or Seattle ghost tours. One of the haunted tour groups in Seattle went through the house, filmed going through the house. They had a medium come with them, all of this for the Montel Williams show. And 
Peter Peterson, now living down in like in California, kind of Bay Area, happens to see this. <laughs> happens to just tune on, tune in and be like, what? <laughs> and the crazy thing is the medium having no knowledge of his stories of living there goes up the stairs and stops right at the spot where he first had that super cold, deep freeze moment. And is immediately this medium has the same experience. It's really cold. She feels resistance. And like just super weirded out about it. And to this day... The um, woman, Linda, and her son, Micah, own the home. It's a private residence. They have, on a few different occasions, for um, like a Georgetown um, art walk, have opened up the home to allow people to kind of walk through like a open house, sort of. Uh, but... Um, Otherwise, it's, there's no tours or anything like that. But I guess there is a plaque outside that if you do want to walk by, you can read the plaque. But obviously, it is someone's private home. So, you know, you don't want to, like, go there and just try to go in. and like, hi, can I come inside? <laughs> Which there have been a few people that have just done. They've just tried to go in. <laughs> like nope. some museum. <laughs> can you imagine like purchasing a piece of seattle history but it's you know seattle's real history mm -hmm. and it being connected to so many of those things that random people just try to come into your house <laughs> i'd be pretty pissed yeah so yeah that is the long explanation but i don't know i just think it's fun how close that is to us and mm -hmm. kind of crazy connections to my favorite parts of seattle history <laughs> yeah now i kind of want to just drive by and check it out because i don't know if i've even ever seen it seen it in person i've i've definitely seen it when we've driven and um, just been like, I just, that, I need to know more about that house. <laughs> it looks like a really cool place. I, I just feel like there's more to that place. Is it a bed and breakfast? Is like, is there something going on there? What's going on? Now I know. Now I know I've always been curious. <laughs> and it was a nice, like, getting away from the story I told a lot more fun <laughs> kind of funny that we both went pretty local with it today mm -hmm. I think uh, I don't think we need to drag this out any further I think we could just say goodnight to folks um, until next time though uh, drink good local beer and you're welcome for all the nightmares you guys for sure mm-hmm <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. For more information, we can be found on Instagram 
at Seattle underscore on underscore tap. Email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website, SeattleOnTap.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And all of the Seattle On Tap original music is provided by Bubble Bathism, courtesy of the Subterranot Recording Collective. <laughs>